All right, good morning, everybody. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be continuing in our uh, study of Jesus' letters to the churches. <clears throat> you know, and it's very interesting. So those of you who know me, uh, you may call me irresponsible, I don't know, but I don't do a lot of, a lot of preparation. I just I feel like the Lord leads me somewhere, and, and that's where we go. And so it's been very interesting yesterday as I was sitting and preparing for this you know, typically when the Lord is trying to make a point to me, um, or if he's trying to speak something specific, what the pattern that's been prevalent in my life over and over and over and over is he speaks the same thing, boom, 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 for like a week and a half, two weeks. To me, to other people, I still remember uh, there, was a, there was a time where there was these questions coming up over and over, like, like probably eight or nine people in a week and a half, you know, really concerned with, can I lose my faith? And that was just the question over and over and over and over and over. And finally, one day I'm like, Lord, what the heck? Why is this so, so prominent? Why, do, why is this such, a, such a, a question? And the Lord spoke to me in my prayer time and said, well, it's because people don't understand the new covenant. And so it was him bringing this up over and over and over and then speaking to me and answering my prayer that I had to go back and read the new covenant. And then things just started to click and now there's this whole depth of understanding of the scripture and a strength in teaching those scriptures that I never would have had if it wasn't for the Lord just putting this in front of me over and over. And so my point is, is that's kind of just God's pattern, at least for me. And it was interesting, yesterday, I realized as I'm getting ready for this message, we're really looking at um, Jesus is speaking to his seven churches. And in each one, he's coming in. He says, look, I see your works. I understand what you're doing. He praises them in a sense. But in all the churches except for two, he's really coming with a rebuke, okay? And so a rebuke is basically, that just means he's coming in and saying, hey, I have an issue with this in your faith, in your life. And one, I think the, the wording in one of those is, is really well, uh, or in a lot of these things, I have this against you, or I have not found your works perfect before me. And so Jesus is coming in and he's correcting the church why? Because God's heart for us as his people are to be like him. His heart for us is to declare the glory and the goodness and the truth of God, yes, with our words, but also with our life, right? You know the people no one likes to listen to are the guys who uh, talk about financial wealth and, you know, drive uh, beat-up cars from the 90 and can't afford to buy you lunch. Nobody wants to listen to finances about that guy, right, from that guy. And so the same thing with, with pastors and churches, you know, the thing we hear on the street all the time is, well, oh, you know, churches are full of hypocrites and, and so on and so forth, because a lot of times we don't, we don't want to see someone who is saying this is true, this is the way you live, but you don't see that in their life, right? And so the way we live is actually many times a greater teaching tool than what we have to say. And so Jesus is very concerned with the purity of his church. He's very concerned with us being filled with the spirit and, and doing good works and following in his ways. But as I was reading about the church of uh, Thyatira, where's that? Here we go, verse 18. Thyatira yesterday, I realized that I kind of feel like I'm beating a dead horse on some subjects. So on Friday, we have church at my home every Friday night. And um, we've been in 1 Corinthians for two weeks. But before that, we were in 2 Peter. And I think we spent like two or three weeks just talking about 
false teachers and the importance of doctrine and the importance of understanding God's word and the importance of understanding what we're teaching. And then last week, um, the church of Pergamos, <laughs> I'm trying to remember uh, where we're at. <laughs> the church of Pergamos, we talked about, um, again, about the Jesus speaking against this church for holding to these false doctrines. And then this week again, in a very similar matter, and we're, it's not going to be the same sermon, but there, there seems to be a, a similar thread here. So it's just very interesting um, what the Lord is leading us through. And so we actually have, I've got quite a, I've got quite a few notes I'm going to bring to you this morning, and I hope it's going to be uh, very, very in line. I think it'll be easy to follow, uh, but we're going to be working through the verses 18 through 29 in chapter 2 of Revelation, the church to Thyatira. So before we do that, let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for this morning, Lord. I thank you for the goodness of who you are, Father. I thank you for your word, Lord God. I thank you that it's by your word that all things exist all things are held together. Jesus, you are the word of God. Your scriptures say that all things will pass away in heaven and earth, but your word remains forever. And so, Jesus, I pray that we would partner with you, that we would be like you, Lord, that we would conform to your word and not to the world, Lord, that you would renew us in our minds day after day, Father God. I thank you, Jesus, for what you're doing um, in all of us, Father. I pray that you would just open up our hearts and minds to receive uh, your words, your, your encouragement, your commandments, Father, that even, even as you come to these churches to correct them, Father, uh, your correction is love, Father. Hebrews tells us that you discipline those who, who you love. And so, Father, we just pray that you would guide us through the scriptures today and let us be one with you and one with each other in all things. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. All right, so let's read. Starting in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, these things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works. I know your love. I know your service, your faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Amen to that. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexually, uh, sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do, has, do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works till the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. 
They shall be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel. And I also have received from my father, or as I also have received from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And um, it's very interesting to me, actually, Mark used that phrase just a moment ago, I believe in prayer. He who has an ear, let him let him hear, right? And that's a that's a statement that Jesus really likes to use. He who has an ear, let him hear. He who has an ear, let him hear. And I love the, what Francis Chan says in one of his messages, talking about the the teaching of Jesus. That basically Jesus he gives a, the parable of the sower. And he describes it. Look, when you, read, when you read the gospel, this is what Jesus does. He stands up in front of this mass crowd of people and he says, oh, you know, there was this guy with some seed. He threw some on this soil. This happened. Threw some on this soil. This happened. This soil. This happened. This soil happens. If you get it, you get it. If you don't, you don't. And he walks off. But in all reality, um, some of these people don't know what the heck I'm talking about. But in all reality, that's kind of what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't always, you know, chase us down and beg us to do these things. And in fact, when you read through the gospel, he doesn't chase anybody down. He hears from the Father. He goes where the Father sent him. He hears from the Father. He speaks what the Father speaks. And then he uses these words, he who has an ear, let him hear. Now, is he talking about Van Gogh? No. Um, get it? Got one ear? Okay. No, what he's saying is, if you're willing to listen, if you're willing to receive truth, hear my words. And if you're not, don't. And Jesus moves on because he knows that his sheep hear his voice and follow after him. So we're going to look at a couple things from, uh, from this passage today. Uh, the first thing is, is, what is Jesus praising this church for? Well, he says, look, I know your love. I know your service. This is a church that served one another. I know your faith and your patience. And he says this, and as for your works, the last are more than the first. And so he's praising this church that these aren't just people who show up and say, oh, I'm a Christian, and they carry their Bible and they go home. No, no, no. These are people who are living it. And they're living it, and they're abounding, and they're growing, and they're not the same today as they were yesterday. They're not comfortable just just doing, oh, well, you know, I I do this and I get by. No, they're serving the Lord with the fullness of their heart, and, and there's an evident, there's a progress in their ministry. And he says, I praise you for that. And you know, there's, there's several times in the scriptures where Paul writes to us saying, I hope that you abound in all things and abound in good works. That the more we come to know Jesus, the more that the love of God penetrates our heart, the more the love of God flows out of us. And what does the love of God look like? It looks like Jesus going to the cross to serve people who hated him, to serve people who did not yet know him. It looks like Jesus washing the feet of his disciples who should have been washing his feet. There is a service. There is an outward manifestation of God's love that is shown in in sacrifice. And Jesus sees this in this church and he commends them. And so for us, there's an encouragement to to consider ourselves and to continue growing in the Lord, to continue growing in good works. But at the same time, he says, in the midst of this, 
Even though you, I know you have faith, I know you have service, and I see that you are even growing in them, but he says, I still have this against you. And there's a key word here that we're gonna focus on. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. So let's just pause there, uh, right, or pause right there. I want everybody to say, you allow. Okay, say it again. You allow. It's very interesting. Jesus is coming to this church, and he's rebuking them, which a rebuke is not, you're so bad and I don't like you. No, no, no. It's, hey, you're off point here, and I want you, I want you to be on point, right? When your father corrects you, it's not be- when he spanks you and puts you in the corner, it's not because he hated you, it's because he loves you, Okay? And I discipline my children because I want them to be a man of integrity one day. I want my boys to be men who look people in the eye and shake their hands. I want my boys to be men who hold the door open and say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. I want my boys to be someone that when they're hired, they know that that man is going to show up every day for work and he's going to work hard. That's the type of men I want my children to be. And so I discipline them because if I don't, they're going to go their own way. And they're going to reap the fruits of bad character which is bad fruits, right? And so Jesus, when he comes with a rebuke, it's the same thing. It's, it's in hope of correcting us for, for love, right? And the, and the Bible's very clear. Hey, no discipline seems, uh, seems good at the time, right? You don't get soap in your mouth. Oh, thank you, mom. No, 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 nobody likes that, right? My mom put soap in my mouth a couple times. It wasn't that great. I got smart. I started to run to the bathroom first. So then she put it in my mouth and, I, mm-hmm, and then I just start washing my mouth out. Um, Thankfully, she didn't stand there and watch me. That would have been bad. But, you know, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for the correction and the things that that was put in my life now. So that, you know, I have uh, the character I have today because of of the instruction of my parents. Some of y'all are like, ooh. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. Uh, You know, and so I'm thankful for that. But Jesus has this against this church. Not, Not just what they do but what they allow. And so today we're gonna talk about what do we allow ourselves to partner with? What do we allow ourselves to believe or walk in? And what do we allow in our midst? And does it please God? Because at the end of the day, everything can be answered with, with this. Does this glorify God? And if the answer is no, throw it out, right? So I want to read a couple things to you first before we get back to this. Psalm 119, starting in verse 165. It says, great peace, great peace. Anybody want peace in their life? Man, I, need, I, I want peace, right? Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. What does it mean to you when you hear, when when the Bible talks about stumbling? What do you think? Flat on your face. Flat on your face. Okay, so so falling down. uh, What do you think? What what do you mean? What does it mean when it talks about stumbling? Uh, Stub your toe. Stub your toe. 
okay? Right, so stumbling, it's, it's the, the Bible talks about righteousness as walking uprightly, right? He said, the Bible says that the word is the lamp to our feet. Uh, we read in Second Peter, I think it was, I can't remember now, talks about a list of things and he says, and if you do these things, if you walk this way, if you obey these commandments, you will never stumble, so stumbling is, is, it's a part of our, when we talk about a spiritual walk, about being able to move forward, about being able to glorify the Lord, about being able to do right in his sight, stumbling is anything that causes us to kind of fall off that path, anything that hinders us from walking forward, anything that's causing us to not walk uprightly, right? It's a stumbling block. Great peace have those who love your law and nothing causes them to stumble. Proverbs 4, 11 through 12. I have taught you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in right paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hindered. When, when God puts something on your heart, he'll open the doors, right? You won't be hindered. And when you run, you will not stumble. Hosea 14, 9. Who is wise? Let him understand these things. Who is prudent? Let him... Uh, know them, for the ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them, being the ways of the Lord. And one more, Malachi 2, 7 through 9. Listen to this. This is, <laughs> I'm not, okay, I'm just gonna be, I'm gonna be honest here, right? Wait, I should always be honest, right? Anyways, uh, this, I remember the first time I read this and it convicted me because I read this in a time of really being kind of slack spiritually and kind of just, uh, you know, walking, you know, not really being diligent and seeking the Lord. And uh, people were coming to me with questions and I was answering, but it was kind of just, well, you know, and just, there wasn't really a, I couldn't, I couldn't have claimed to be filled with the spirit in those times, okay? And I was really working out of my own strength and I read this and this just weight of, of uh, responsibility fell on me and really convicted me, right? The Lord was coming to rebuke me a little bit, and I said, okay, Lord, I'm gonna get straight on that. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Now this verse, which at one time hurt me a little bit, is now a source of strength and encouragement to me. But it says, for the lips of a priest should keep knowledge, and the people should seek the law from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts, but you have departed from the way. You have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, I also have made you contemptible and base before all the people because you have not kept my ways, but have shown partiality in the law. Anybody know what partiality means? Someone give me an answer to that. What's partiality? Favoritism. So what is that? how does that work dealing with the law? You follow one law and choose not to follow another. And so what God is doing, and this happens several times in the Old Testament, but what he's doing is he's rebuking these people who are supposed to be his ministers, his priests, because when people come into their temple, they refuse to teach them the right ways. They refuse to determine and call this clean and call this unclean. They refuse to, to hold fast to his words and they have profaned his ministry. And so God actually cast them into judgment and, and all of these things, right? And we saw last week where this prophet, um, Balaam, 
instead of doing what the Lord had told him to do, he decided, well, you know, I'm just going to kind of go over this way and I'm just going to do this and it'll be all right. And God, there was an angel that was going to kill him. And he got saved by a donkey, right? And the, the, the Lord even allowed the donkey to speak, which is pretty crazy. And he's like, dude, why are you beating me up? Aren't I such a good donkey? Haven't I always been good to you? And now you're mad at me because I'm trying to keep you on the right path. But so there's a judgment against, against his ministers because they've refused to keep knowledge. They've refused to, um, to teach right. And they were causing other people to stumble at the law. And so what we're looking at here in Revelation is something very similar, that the anger of Jesus Christ is aroused against his church. Is that something y'all hear a lot, a phrase, the anger of Jesus Christ? You ever heard that in a church before? Jesus gets angry? Okay, he does, he does. He is, he's not happy. The anger of Jesus Christ is aroused against his church. Why? Because there are people in this church that are not only walking in a way that is not reflective of God's glory, that is not honoring him, that's actually hurting them and hurting other people, but what it's doing is it's, it's their actions and their teaching is causing other people to fall astray. Other people to fall astray. And Jesus takes that very seriously because the church is Jesus's people. You are his body, his body. He is intimately attached to every one of you. You are not my congregants. You are not Mark's congregants. Jesus is the pastor of this church. This is his body. And he takes that very seriously. And there is a fear of God in my heart because of that. Because I don't serve people. And anybody in ministry, anybody in leadership needs to hear me out. You do not serve people. You serve God. And out of serving God, you will end up serving people. But often what I see is people who seek to, to serve and to minister to people and they make unwise decisions because of how the other person might feel or respond. And what, that, and what, that, what happens is they actually stop serving Jesus to serve people. Do you see what I'm saying? I serve Jesus first and foremost. And any love, any benefit that I can offer to you is just him through me, right? And that is how it should be for all of God's ministers. But here's the thing. I want to talk to you a little bit about this woman, Jezebel. And oh my gosh, I don't even know if I should go there on all the people who talk about, oh, someone's got the Jezebel spirit. I hate hearing that stuff. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about, okay? People get crazy with some of this. Some of y'all are just like, I still don't know what this guy's talking about. That's okay. But let's talk a little bit about Jezebel. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things offered to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality and she did not repent. So who the heck is this woman, Jezebel? This is really, really interesting. So, um, we could probably say we don't know for sure, but I would, I would say I'm 99% sure that probably her name is not Jezebel, okay? It says that woman, Jezebel, and that's giving it to her as a title. And the scriptures often uses this title of Jezebel, even later on in the book of Revelation, as a picture of spiritual 
harlotry, of rebellion, of pride, okay, of wickedness. And so the question then is, well, who the heck is Jezebel? So in First and Second Kings, it talks about this woman who's actually a, a queen from a different nation, not from Israel. And the king of Israel marries her. His name is Ahab. And he marries this woman, Jezebel. And Jezebel comes in and she does something very wicked. Now, Ahab, not the greatest guy, okay? Y'all need to know that. He wasn't that good of a dude anyways. But he marries this woman, Jezebel. And Jezebel comes in. And what you see in the scriptures is she's kind of, it's like, I saw this sign at Dickie's, and it's really funny, because um, it's sometimes true. And it says, do you want to talk to the man in charge or the woman who knows what's going on? <laughs> and I'm like, Ugh. People come to my house, oh, so what time's the party? Or what, what, are you all doing this? And I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, party. Yeah, there was a party today, wasn't there? Time. Courtney? Uh, <laughs> you know, and so what, what we see is that this woman, Jezebel, she really kind of wore the pants in the family, if, if you catch my drift. There are a lot of things where she was overstepping her bounds, and she was acting and making decisions as if she was the man, as if she was the king. And they were things that were always unrighteous. And in fact, they persecuted the people in Israel who sought to actually please the Lord. And so it's this picture of this defiant woman right? There's even, a, there's even a time where Ahab, he wants, he wants uh, the garden uh, or the vineyard of Nabor? Naboth. Naboth. Thank you. He wants this beautiful vineyard, and he's going to, man, I'm going I'm to buy this from this guy. I'm going to make this great vineyard, man. I'm going to drink all this wine. I don't know what his plans were, but he's like, this is a really good plot of land. Well, in Israel, the other nations, the king gets what he wants, okay? Israel is a nation that belongs to God. God doesn't play that game, in Israel, if you, this land belongs to you, it belongs to you and your family. The king cannot come take it. He cannot come take it. And so the king says, hey, I want to buy your vineyard. And Naboth says, no, this is my family's inheritance. So the king goes home sad. Now, thankfully, wicked Ahab, at least he was honorable enough to respect the customs that respected God and to not go take that land. So what does Jezebel do? Jezebel sees her husband sad, sees him upset. Oh, don't worry, honey, I'll get that for you. You just, you just go pout at bed. And she sends men into that city to frame Naboth. I think he dies, doesn't he? He gets killed for it and steals his land. And so we see this rebellious woman working, working these things and causing the other people in the wickedness, but also the thing she did is she brought her gods and she set up shrines to Baal and other shrines, and they built temples in God's land for other gods. And so this woman was causing other people in their midst to be led astray from God's commands, to be led astray from God's way. And God's anger was aroused against her to the point that actually God prophesies death to her, and she's thrown out of a window by her own servants, and it's pretty gory. And by the, by the time the guys go out to find the body, it says that all that's left is her hand bones, her feet bones, and her skull because the dogs had eaten her. And that was what God said was going to happen because she was wicked and refused to repent, and she was defaming God's name. And so 
This woman, Jezebel, um, again, her name is probably not Jezebel, but what is she? She's a woman who is, who is operating in an authority that she does not have. She's a woman who is rebellious in the midst of the church, and she is bringing in these false doctrines, leading people into sexual immorality. Okay, Leading people into false worship. Leading people to eating things that are knowingly, knowingly sacrificed to other gods. Now, if you're married and your wife or your husband, their friend comes in, starts convincing you to go sleep around, how happy are you going to be with that? Are you going to be real happy about that? Guess what? The bride of Christ is his church. He's not happy about that either. If you make a decision as a uh, man for your family and you come home and, you know, Oh, sweetheart, was hanging out with her, with her, with her girlfriend, and they, you come home, and she said, you know, I was talking to old uh, Susie, and I just don't think I'm going to do that. What is your reaction as a husband going to be? Like, he's not even married, and he's laughing. <laughs> he already knows. Okay? That, that is, that's not good. In fact, Queen Vashti, is a, she's a queen um, in the Old Testament in the Persian Empire, these are godless kings and emperors. They're not even Christian God-fearing kings and emperors. And he calls her in and she disobeys and they're all astonished and say, hey, I know that's your wife, but you got to get her out of here because word's going to get out that she dishonored you like that. And you know what's going to happen? This is what the Bible says. All the other women are going to start doing the same thing. You know what I mean? Like that would not make you as a husband happy. Okay. Well, this, this is the bride right here, you guys. Me, we are the bride of Christ. And when someone comes against his body, when someone comes and, and taints and distorts Jesus's words that he's giving to bring life to you and life more abundantly, he takes that very seriously. And because, because she's doing this, he says, I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. You know what that means? That means that somewhere, we're not told how, but somehow the Holy Spirit had come. Rather, rather people had spoken to her and said, hey, this is not right. This is, this is false. I don't know. Or maybe the Holy Spirit himself convicted her heart, and she refused to adhere to that conviction. We don't know. Either way, she had been warned, and she, in her pride, had refused to turn to the way of the Lord. And God says this, Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death and all the churches. He says, I'm gonna do this for a reason. All the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your works. And this right here, is a very important phrase. And all the churches shall know that I am he. So I've been reading through the Old Testament. I've been reading through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, and Ezekiel. I've been reading through Hosea. Um, and that happens a lot. God is sovereign over all things. And from cover to cover, you know what God's first priority is? His first priority is for himself to be glorified because he's worthy of that. He spoke and stars happened. Can you do that? I can't do that. I can barely make spit bubbles. 
He spoke and, and stars happened. The Bible says that you were knit together by him in your mother's womb, that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. He gives you your breath. He gives you rain and sunshine. He's good. He's not just a heavy hand, an oppressor. No, he's good. He's good. He's good. And still we rebel against him. He's good, right? But many times there's this theme in the Old Testament where these things happen. He says, you know what? I'm going to raise these people up and I'm going to smack them down. Pharaoh in Egypt, he hardened his heart. The, the most powerful figure in the world and God judged so the whole world could see that I am he that does these things. Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful figure of the world at his time, God sent out for seven years to live in the field and to eat grass like a cow. He was out of his mind literally for seven years. And then when God chose a time, his mind was opened and he realized who this God was. And there's a portion of our scripture who is, that is written by Nebuchadnezzar, praising the only living God whose hand cannot be restrained. And I'm with Mark. That's one of my favorite parts of scripture. His hand cannot be restrained. God didn't need Nebuchadnezzar's permission to make him a cow. He's not really a cow, but you get my truth. God didn't need Nebuchadnezzar's permission to snap him out of that, Right? And God's purpose is for his own glory. Now, there's a second part. So what does it mean when it talks about those who commit adultery with her? So I think it, it, God is, is, is saying, I'm going to come and I'm going to judge these people so that my glory is, is shown, so that you, O oh church, and the people around you understand what is wicked and what is good. I just taught a class called the redemptive story. And when you go through the Old Testament, there is no bulleted list of who, here's who God is. What happens is there's a narrative and you see what is good, you see what is wicked by how God reacts to things. You see what is sin by how God reacts to things, what he blesses and what he curses, right? And so he says, I'm gonna do these things. I'm gonna pour out judgment. God is a God of judgment and a God of mercy so that others will understand who I am right? But then it says, uh, again, uh, those who commit adultery with her. So we all know what adultery is, right? Raise your hand if you don't know what adultery is. Just wanted to make sure. Wasn't, probably wasn't going to explain that right here. Anyways. But the Bible talks about adultery in another way. Again, Jezebel later on in Revelation, and it talks about the nations that go into her and that partner with her in her wickedness. And it calls them, it says that they commit adultery with her. In the Old Testament, it talks about Israel going into the other nations, the godless nations, and partnering with them. And it says that Israel is committing adultery on God with these nations. And so here what it's saying is these other people, uh, doesn't, is it saying that every one of these other people are sleeping with this particular woman? No. It's saying that they are partnering with her false doctrines, with her teaching, that they are, they are joining her in this rebellion against God. And he says, I'm going to judge those people likewise. And so before we get into this last part, before we close, there's this question on what are we partnering with? I, didn't, I don't have this listed on my verses because I got enough to read for you. But I want, 
if you're, I want you to read this. If you can write this down, if you can memorize it, this is important. I want everybody to read Romans 1, verse 32. It's the very last, last verse in Romans 1, okay? And in fact, I would say just read the paragraph it's in. Because basically what happens in Romans, the end of Romans 1, God lists these things which he hates, these things that are wicked, these things that it says in scriptures are deserving of death, okay? And then at the very end in verse 32, and it says, and, the, and knowing that these things are deserving of death, they not only practice him, them, but they approve of those who do likewise. And so the scriptures pair approving with wickedness in the same boat as if you did it, if you're doing it yourself. Okay, so um, let me give you an example. And I know this is a controversial example, but it's, it's the truth. So homosexuality, let's make, a, let's make a point. Nobody here hates anybody who's homosexual, right? And if you do, let's talk afterwards. But I know you don't. I don't hate them, y'all don't hate them. In fact, I know people who are, and there's a guy who I minister to a group of kids, and he's one of the workers for this facility, and I'm always trying to talk to that guy. He's very nice to me, I'm very nice to him. Uh, I love him to death. I hope one day I can have coffee with him. I hope we can talk about the glory of Jesus Christ who saves all of us from our sins, whatever they are, right? But that does not change the fact that God has said that homosexuality is a sin. Why? Because God created sex and he created men and women for a purpose. And this thing taints his purpose. It taints his purpose. It's against his design. Not only that, but it actually hurts the people involved in it. And I could go on about statistics. I'm not trying to go on that point, but that's a fact. That's actually, even if this was not a faith thing, statistically, you, want, you talk about medical journals, medication, depression, that's a fact. It, when you are in sin, it hurts you, right? And there is a very prominent, very controversial subject in the church on do we stand with, with homos homosexuality or not? Do we allow homosexual people to minister in our churches or not? And the answer has to be no because God doesn't approve of that act. He loves those people, and if those people call out to him for salvation, he will give it to him. He'll give them a new heart and a new spirit, just like he did to me, just like he did to you, right? And those things that, don't, that displease him, he will change, just like he did to me, okay? Because that might not have been my sin, but I have my own list that he had to work out, right? But I hear often, uh, Christians on Facebook and things, oh, well, you know, and they're sharing the rainbow flags and all these things, and we stand with you. And we'll have a conversation, just so, hey, you know, what, what's going on? And, oh, well, I mean, I'm not that way, but, you know, I, 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 I stand with those who are. I'm not against those who are. I'm not against this issue, and I don't think we should be because God is love. Well, that's fine, but that's not how God describes love. God does not describe love by empowering people to walk in things that are going to hurt them. God does not describe love as, a, as, a, as partnering with people as they walk in sin, right? We have to be rescued from ourselves. I'm here today because Jesus rescued me. And in Hosea, one of the things that he says to these people when he's telling them to repent, part of the rescue strategy in, in Hosea chapter 6, I wasn't planning on going there either. Give me just one second. Uh, is it Hosea then Amos? There we go. 
Come, let us return to the Lord. This is Hosea chapter six, verse one. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will raise us up that we might live in his sight. So this is after like five chapters of judgment against Israel. And now there's this one shining light of repentance. He will raise us up that we may live in his sight. Verse three, let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. Pursuing the knowledge of God and who he is and what it means for your life is the equation to walking righteously. It's the equation to to repentance. It's the equation to being healed, that it's the knowledge of God that renews our mind daily. And so it's very important. I wanna, I'm going to try to come to a close here pretty quickly so y'all don't start zoning out on me. But I want to read you a couple of things, and I'm not going to expound on them. I'm going to let them just be what they are. Um, and then we're going we're gonna to come to a close. 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and at his kingdom. Preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come where they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, Because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn away their ears from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And by the way, I will say this. In the context, where do you think these afflictions are going to come from? From preaching the word from holding to the truth that God has declared. Most of the, uh, if you want to call it persecution, kickback, let's say, most of the kickback I've gotten has not been from people who don't believe. It's been from people inside the church, actually, um, because I'm preaching the word. It's very interesting. In 1 Corinthians 5, there's also a similar issue to what we find in, in, in Revelation where there is a man who is sleeping with his father's wife. That's how it's worded. So I'm going to assume it's his stepmom. Otherwise, it would get real sketchy if it wasn't. Uh, (laughs) It's pretty sketchy already. But he says, it is actually reported. So that wording, it is actually, he's like, dude, I cannot even believe this. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named, it's not even named in the godless people, okay? That a man has his father's wife. Now listen to this. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. What is he saying? He's saying this church is actually rejoicing and, and, oh, well, we just, you know, we accept this guy and, oh, look at how much we love and, oh, you know, we're not gonna, oh, it's okay, bud, you know. And he's like, are you out of your dang mind? You're puffed up about this? No, no. No, 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 you should be mourning over this. That man's, what do you think that's good, that is going on in the life of that man's father? You think he's broken? You think he's hurting? What do you think about these relationships? Do you think that this is declaring the goodness of God to the people around you? No. And then in verse six and seven, he says, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven, a little bit of un, 
dealt with sin leavens the whole lump. It makes a little bit of leaven makes a whole batch of dough rise is the point. It works through all of it. Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you are truly unleavened for indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed sacrificed for us. Um <clears throat> Let's see. One last thing here. I'm going to I'm going to skip through some of this. 1 Timothy 3:15. Let's go to that real quick. I've got two favorite scriptures about what is the church. One of them is in 1 Corinthians 1-2. Y'all that have been on Friday know what that is. The second one is this one. This describes what the purpose of God's church is. And it's very important. In 1 Timothy 3.15, he's writing, and there's this, but if I'm delayed, he says, I'm writing all these things. Now, in 1 Timothy, he's already dealt with commanding Timothy to stop people, command them to teach no other doctrine, is what he says. He commands them to stop these teachings. He commands them to stop all these useless arguments. He commands them, what are the declarations for, for elders and deacons? He works through all of these things. And then he says, and I'm writing to you these commandments so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of of God, which is the church of the living God. Now listen to how he describes the, the church. The pillar and the ground or the foundation of truth. The pillar and the foundation of all truth is supposed to be set and holding the world up through the church. And here's the question, guys. If, if people cannot come here to us to find truth. What are their other options? Where else is truth found? Most of the world doesn't even acknowledge that truth exists. It's all relative. Even Pilate, he looked into the face of truth. He looked at Jesus' own face and said, what is truth? Homeboy, you looking at it. We are supposed to be the salt of the world, the light of the, uh, uh, salt of the earth, light of the world, right? We are supposed to be the pillar and the ground of truth. And the fact that this church in Revelation had allowed for things to discard that. He was coming against them. And last week we talked about how he was coming with a sword and there was this kind of threat of his presence. Now he's upping the ante. He says, I'm coming to you with death and destruction because I've given you opportunity and you refuse to repent. That is not God's heart. He says it over and over in Ezekiel, right? Do I have any pleasure that a soul should die? No, I, I would rather you turn, understand my will and come to me. Final part here, Revelation 2. And I got to turn back because I lost my little place. Now, I, now it's, this is verse 24. Oh, actually, let me go to verse 23. I'll kill her children with death. All the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now, to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, 
as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. He shall be, they shall be dashed to, to pieces like a potter's vessel. And I also have received, as I also have received from my father, I will give them the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what he says to the churches. So he makes this distinction that there, that there are these, he's, there are people who are partnering with this, and then there are people who have not joined together in idolatry. They have not joined together in disregarding his commands. They have not joined together in this, this spiritual adultery, but they've hold, held fast his works. And he said, I'm going to come and I'm going to make judgment, but in that day, I'm going to keep you from that. And for all who have an ear to hear, I'll say this, there's two, there's two types of people in the world. We hear the word of God and our hearts harden, or we hear the word of God and it breaks a little bit. And I encourage us all to be the one to let your heart break because God will mend it up. And the scriptures say, blessed are those who mourn. That means over sinfulness because you'll be comforted. You'll be comforted, right? He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. So in conclusion, guys, we need to be people who love the law of the Lord because then nothing will cause us to stumble. We need to be people who seek what is the way of God? Um, what are the things that God has put before us? Because in all of Jesus's commands, there is life for our spirit. Peace, joy, long-suffering, patience, goodness, kindness, self-control. These are fruits of the spirit, right? And guess what? I wasn't there when, when the Bible was written, okay? When the Holy Spirit fell out on people for the first time at Pentecost, were, were y'all there? You weren't there? I wasn't there. The apostles writing this were there. Okay? When Jesus says the Holy Spirit's going to come and lead you into all truth, he was talking to these guys. And to us, yes, but he was specifically talking to them who wrote these words. Right? Did Jesus appear to you and proclaim to you what message to preach specifically? He did to Paul. He did to Peter. He did to John right? And he's given these instructions so that we can have a fullness of blessing. Look, I don't know everything, for sure, not even close. And there's been many times in my life where I wasn't sure. I felt maybe the Lord was leading me. I felt maybe this was the case. But I can tell you every time, especially in hindsight 2020, every time I look back and I know for a fact the Lord did that. The Lord said that. The Lord proved that. Those things have always matched his word every single time. And those things that were fruitless, those things that were meaningless, those things that caused me harm, and the things that I see my other brothers and sisters living in them cause them harm, are typically things that don't, right? And there's an empowerment. The scriptures say, God honors those who honor him. And so I wanna leave y'all with this. I wanna leave y'all just with the simple fact of we need to be people who uncompromisingly hold to God's word. We need to be people who have a boldness and authority to speak. This is truth. This is truth, and it's affecting my life. We also need to be people who know the word well enough to do that. 
right? And I, I preach to uh, high schoolers and middle schoolers every Thursday. And you know what they're doing this week? They're reading through the book of Matthew. They're reading through the Beatitudes. Because last Thursday, for the first time in about a year, instead of just preaching to them whatever I felt I needed to preach, I said, you know what, guys? I'm talking like 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds, 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds. What do you want to know about the Bible? I wasn't getting, no, is Santa Claus real? I was getting, what was the purpose of Jesus coming? Why were two men crucified next to him? I got, who was Jezebel? (laughs) That was an interesting one. Should we read the Book of Mormon from a 13-year-old? These are the questions I was getting. They wanted to know who God is. They wanted to know what is the way. How do I understand these things? And it would have been no benefit to anyone if I said, well, interpret it as you want. And so I have them. I said, look, I love being here with y'all guys. I love worshiping with y'all. I love teaching the word. But you cannot really know God if all you're getting is Thursday with Darren. I know y'all are young, but if any of you have the desire, I'm not going to tell you to do it, but if any of you have a desire, open up to Matthew 5 and just start reading this week. They start pulling out pins. What, what was that again? What chapter? Where is that? I'm like, bro, you got a table of context. Come on. And these kids are starting to read the word of God. That is going to change their life more than anything I will ever tell them. And I know because I've been a Christian pretty much my whole life. And the thing that's changed my life more than anything, the thing that continues to change my life every day is that I read the word of God and it reads me. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for this morning, Lord God. I thank you that you are light and there is no darkness in you at all, Father. You're good. All your ways are good, Father, that you you seek to bless us. You seek to glorify yourself in our lives. You seek to use us, Father. You've called us to significance, Father, that you have works prepared for us to walk in that were set beforehand. That's what your scripture says, Lord. You love us and you've, given, you've created already in your mind there is an eternal kingdom that will come to exist so that we can be in your presence forever with no pain, with no suffering, with no surgeries, Lord God, where you will keep us in your presence. And it is open to all those who love you and follow you and your word says that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us because of the work of Jesus and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So Lord, help us to just hit the resets on our hearts, Lord God. Help us to hit the resets on our minds, to be renewed, to seek your word anew, Father, and to hold to it, Lord, to question, to question, to question, because, Lord, you answer. And Jesus, so I thank you for this time. I pray that you bless us, Father. I pray that everybody in this room is given a a day and a time on their heart to just begin to read your word. So, Lord, just carry us in your grace, in Jesus' mighty name, amen.